Mexic Clinical Pearls. Hello everyone and welcome back to Mexic's Clinical Pearls, where we talk about clinically important conditions and approaches to critical care situations. My name is Stacy and with me today is Kathy. And this week we'll be focusing on one of the most common ward calls we get as a junior doctor, assessing a patient's volume status and subsequent fluid management. This is a really important concept to get your head around because managing fluid levels is something you'll do across nearly all specialties and we can have a really large impact on your patient's outcomes. Today we'll be focusing on the types of IV fluids and where they're used as well as how to assess a patient's fluid status. Once we've got these concepts under our belt, we'll be looking at principles of fluid management in our next podcast. Firstly, it's important to think about why we would give fluids. So a really easy way to go about this is by thinking about the five R's. So they stand for resuscitation, routine maintenance, replacement, redistribution, and reassessment. So firstly, we'll look at resuscitation, which, as the name implies, is for patients who need urgent IV fluids to restore circulation to their vital organs. The next R, routine maintenance, is for patients who are generally otherwise well, but they might just need that extra IV fluid therapy because they're unable to maintain their normal fluid levels orally or by another enteral route. In contrast, patients who need fluids to correct water and electrolyte deficits, such as those who get severe diarrhea or vomiting, need replacement. And then the fourth R, redistribution, looks at where the fluid is in the body. So in complex patients who have a lot of cardiac, liver, or renal comorbidities, they may have an unequal shift of fluid between different body compartments. In these situations, we'll give IV fluids to help redistribute the fluid correctly in the body. The last R is not really an indication, but just a reminder to keep reassessing the patient. So now that we've looked at why someone might be given fluids, let's look at the different types of fluids we can give. Selecting an appropriate IV fluid for a particular clinical situation is daunting for even the most senior of medical students. However, a basic understanding of physiology can help in your approach. The human body is composed of about 60% water. Of this, only one third is extracellular, that is, outside the cells, of which one third is intravascular, like plasma, with the rest being interstitial, between cells but not within the vessels. Clinically, when we assess the volume status of a patient, we make assumptions on the extracellular compartment of fluid, and the most clinically relevant part of this compartment is what amount of fluid is within the circulation. Fluids consist of a solvent, like water, and solutes, which are either electrolytes such as sodium and potassium, or non-electrolytes such as dextrose and proteins. Some solutes cross cell membranes more readily than others, depending on their physical properties. Water, however, is able to move across cell membranes through osmosis, so that the net effect is equal solute concentrations on each side of the membrane. So what happens when you infuse a litre of pure water in a patient? The solute concentration inside red blood cells is higher than that of water. So water crosses the cell membranes, stretching the cells, until pop, it bursts. Conversely, in a hypertonic solution, the red blood cells will shrink as water moves out of the cell into the surrounding fluid. For these reasons, most IV fluids in hospital settings are close to isotonic, having the same solute concentration as blood, to minimise such fluid shifts. So what about the solutes? Well, for a med student level, when it comes to treating disorders of fluid balance, 
There are three main solutes to consider when choosing IV fluids. Firstly, glucose, which is distributed throughout both intra- and extracellular spaces. 50 grams of dextrose dissolved in one litre of water is known as D5W and is initially an isotonic solution. However, dextrose is slowly absorbed into the cells, leaving only the water to evenly distribute across all fluid compartments. Secondly, we have sodium which remains in the extracellular space. By far the most commonly used is normal saline, or 0.9% NaCl. As sodium does not readily move intracellularly, it remains in the extracellular space for a longer duration than glucose infusions. Finally, we have albumin, which remains within the intravascular space for much longer than any electrolyte. This is because albumin is a large protein meaning it cannot easily cross the endothelium pores of blood vessels. You may also hear the terms colloid and crystalloids be used. Put simply, colloids comprise of fluids with larger solutes, such as albumin and fresh frozen plasma, which relate, remain intravascularly for longer periods. Crystalloids, on the other hand, are generally lower-cost solutions containing salts such as normal saline and electrolytes such as potassium, calcium and magnesium. These other electrolytes are usually in very low concentrations, mostly located intracellularly so that they are only replaced if UEC bloods indicate they are low. One commonly used crystalloid you may see, however, is Hartman's solution, a combination of sodium chloride, sodium lactate, potassium chloride and calcium chloride, which is similar to the composition of blood plasma and is sometimes preferred over normal saline. The distribution and permeability of our free solutes, glucose, sodium and albumin, is a fundamental principle that guides our choices in fluid therapy. So let's try two examples. What should we give a patient with intravascular volume depletion? Theoretically, they can be treated with any of normal saline or albumin. Because normal saline is more readily available and less expensive, it is the treatment of choice for initial resuscitation of volume-depleted patients. Dextrose would be of little benefit as the glucose and water would be distributed equally throughout the intravascular, interstitial and extravascular spaces. But how about a patient with hypernatremia or high blood sodium concentration who is otherwise stable? We can use IV fluids to decrease the sodium concentration. Here, Isotonic normal saline is a bad move as it will only worsen the hyponatremia. Instead, clinicians may use dextrose or even half normal saline, 0.45 NaCl. So next we'll look at how to assess a patient's fluid status. There are three main things we want to consider for this, the patient's history, your examination and any further investigations that we would like to do. So firstly, let's start with the history. So there are three main things that we want to look for here as well. So points where the fluid enters the body, points where it leaves, and symptoms of dehydration or fluid overload. Fluid entry is pretty simple. How much has the patient been drinking and or how much IV fluid therapy are they receiving? Fluid exit is a bit more complicated because it can come in many forms, such as bleeding, vomiting, and urination. Lastly, remember to screen for symptoms of fluid imbalance. For example, are they thirsty, feeling lightheaded, or maybe they're overloaded and are feeling a bit short of breath, have orthopnea, ascites, or peripheral edema. Next is the physical examination. 
So the first thing to note when you see any patient is how do they look? Are they well or are they unwell? This can provide a really good idea of the general state of the patient as well as how urgent our management needs to be. Other signs you might see might be shortness of breath, visible edema or pallor. This is also a really good time to check for things around the bedside, such as any IV lines, catheters, drains, or even a fluid balance chart or a daily weight chart. So the normal urine output of a healthy adult is about 0.5 to 1 milliliters per kilogram per hour. Anything drastically above or below this is a cause for concern, as is any change in admission weight of greater than 1 kilogram. Next, move on to taking their vitals, including a postural BP. These can also indicate their fluid balance. For example, tachycardia and hypertension are late signs of hypovolemia. However, do remember that normal vitals do not preclude hypovolemia as the patient may still be compensating. This is particularly the case for younger patients who have a really good compensatory mechanism. Peripherally, poor capillary refill time, decreased skin turgor, cool peripheries, sunken orbits, and dry mucous membranes can indicate hypovolemia. Signs of fluid overload can include a raised JVP in the neck and ascites. Lastly, we should always check for edema in the lungs, abdomen, legs, and sacrum. Now that your exam is done, further investigations can be ordered. If not already occurring, a very strict fluid balance chart or daily weight chart should be ordered. For bloods, we would look for electrolyte disturbances caused by fluid imbalance or signs of dehydration such as raised creatinine or a decreased GFR. Assessing a patient's fluid status consists of three main steps, the patient's history, your examination, and further investigations. For the history, the three things to look for are points of fluid entry, fluid exit, and symptoms of dehydration or overload. For physical exam, remember the first and most important thing is to always identify if the patient looks unwell. Don't forget to look at the surroundings as well, such as IV lines, catheters, and a fluid balance chart. Normal vitals do not preclude hypovolemia, and hachycardia and hypertension are late signs of hypovolemia. Further investigations we might do include a UEC, strict fluid balance charts, and daily weights. Next episode, our team will go through each component of the five R's of fluid management, so stay tuned. In the meantime, don't hesitate to get in touch with us via our Facebook or Twitter if you have any questions or requests for other topics you'd like us to cover. Until then, stay safe.